0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of the One Ocean Hub podcast, where we talk about various interrelationships of the ocean and the humankind. My name is Milica Prokic and I am a knowledge exchange associate with the One Ocean Hub. I am an environmental historian, artist, and an island enthusiast. And with me today are two scholars Mia Strand, who is a social science early career researcher based at the Nelson Mandela University in South Africa. Mia recently completed her doctorate, which focused on usefulness of art-based participatory research to co-produce knowledge with indigenous and local communities for more equitable ocean governance in South Africa. Her current research interests include social justice and inclusivity, ocean governance, arts-based methods and transdisciplinary research for equitable knowledge co-production. This coming January, Mia starts a research fellowship at the University of Washington, which is jointly supported by the One Ocean Nexus and the One Ocean Hub. Mia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: And with us today also is Sophie Shields, an early career researcher at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, where she wears two hats. Uh, One as the Ocean Hub researcher working on children's human rights and the ocean and of a policy impact specialist at the Institute for Inspiring Children's Futures, also at the University of Strathclyde. Sophie earned an MSc with distinction on diplomacy and international security, as well as a joint honours bachelor degree in law and politics and international relations. Her current research interests include children's human human rights to healthy environments, as well as meaningful, participatory, people-centred and local human rights, youth empowerment and intergenerational partnerships. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting today. Fantastic. It is great to have you both on. So... Basically, the One Ocean Hub was the platform where uh, you two coming from uh, sort of different um, academic backgrounds, but with the same uh, interest in ocean and children and children's rights, um, ended up writing uh, these two publications that I'd really like to talk to you about today. So one of the papers um, is Children's Human Right to Be Heard at the One Ocean Nexus, and that's Um, published with which journal, Mia?
1: The International Journal of Marine and
0: Coastal Law. Uh And how about Protecting Children's Rights to Development and Culture by Reimagining Ocean Literacies, which is your other uh, paper that you collaborated on uh, with Sophie. That was published in? The International Journal of Children's Rights. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, I I read both of them with great interest. And I've got um, some questions for both of you um, about uh, both of those uh, publications in no particular order. Uh, but uh, let's kick it off. I would like to ask you, Mia, what do opportunities uh, for children's expression to co-creation, play, creativity, exploration and art would look like? Because that is um, something that uh, I felt came out very strongly in your research here.
1: Thank you for that question. And I think it's, um, it's a multidimensional question and answer, I guess, in many ways. But I think at the core of that argument or arguments is that we should be adapting opportunities for children to engage according to their needs and their interests and wishes and try and find um, opportunities to make sure that children can engage in ways that are fun and play-based and sometimes arts-based because children learn and express themselves in different ways as we all do as humans and I think in many ways we need to provide more opportunities for children to share and express themselves through different shapes and forms so using art based methods for example such as drawing dancing painting acting and sculpting um and to think about what they want to know or what they do know about the ocean already but also to think about what the ocean might mean for them currently or what they want the ocean to mean to them in the future I also think we should prioritize opportunities for children to learn directly from the ocean and coast. So when we talk about opportunities for children's expression through exploration, we should prioritize opportunities for children to develop their own relationships to the ocean and coast. So whether that is in situ learning, which means actually bringing the classroom to the ocean because the ocean can be a classroom in and of itself um but or if that means you know prioritizing excursions or opportunities for children who haven't been able to form their own personal relationship to the ocean so for example in a context like South Africa where people have been forcibly removed from the ocean and coast we should put even more um resources and time into ensuring that children actually get an opportunity to learn directly from the ocean and and nature. And I think that can also, that can take many shapes and forms, like we said, through play, creativity, exploration. Um, But yeah, I think forming your own relationship to the ocean, there's something really immense in that. And it's obviously a privilege, but I do think if we are ever to talk about equity and not just equality in environmental education and ocean literacies and children's rights to a healthy ocean, we we need to really prioritize um, opportunities for children who have been forcibly removed or who haven't had the same opportunity to engage with and learn directly from the ocean.
0: That's great, Mia. And it's a great segue to my next question. Uh particularly about your paper entitled Protecting Children's Rights to Development and Culture in the International Journal of Children's Rights, where you argue that the concept of ocean literacy should instead be taken holistically on the one hand and conceptualized as ocean literacies, plural on the other. Can you expand on what do we mean by ocean literacy to begin with? And then why do you argue for this reconceptualization towards plurality? And what would the practical implications and opportunities of this plurality be?
1: Thank you for that question. One way of understanding ocean literacy is very briefly to think of it as an understanding of your influence on the ocean and the ocean's influence on you. And I think the idea of really rethinking about The way we word ocean literacies as a plural instead of a singular is recognizing that there are multiple ways of knowing the ocean and understanding the ocean and relating to the ocean, and we should ensure that children can learn from this plurality of ocean knowledge.s Even though I believe that many practitioners, um, educators, scholars really see ocean literacy as a multidimensional concept and really does inherit a holistic conceptualization of what we mean by the ocean and how we understand the ocean and that it should embody many multiple oceanologists. I think we need to make it as explicit as possible to better account for the varying diversity and breadth and depth of ways of knowing the ocean and the different social, cultural, economic, geographical, ecological contexts in which people interact with the ocean, understand the ocean, and shape knowledge about the ocean. So I think the the focus on ocean literacy as a plural stems from a recognition that there are many ways of knowing and understanding the ocean. And this should be emphasized in environmental education and ocean literacies efforts to ensure that children are presented by this multidimensional understanding i just think it really recognizing a multidimensional aspect of ocean literacies as a plural is really to dismiss the idea that there is one way of knowing the ocean and one way of understanding the ocean and really celebrating the fact that there are many different ways of relating to understanding and connecting with the ocean.
0: Fantastic. Um, So yeah, thank you for this. Um, Sophie, um, uh, would you like to build on this and say maybe a little bit more about um, from your sort of expertise and from your background, what was your experience of uh, tackling these questions, uh, working in this paper?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think as Mia notes, the most important thing is taking space for a holistic nature um, to broaden horizons in one hand, but also on the other hand, a lot of times to meet children where they are. So as we know, children already have their own experiences of the ocean and what that means to them and providing multiple opportunities of of framing that and understanding what that means for their life, their experiences, and also their rights as well as we're talking there, as we know about the ocean as a, a place of experiential learning, but also a place for fun, for play, to relax we all have you know took joy from experiencing the coast the ocean from a place of relaxing having fun with friends and family um I think it's more about providing opportunities to look at things from different perspectives and to have a place where maybe your your mindset or your thoughts or your opinions on how you're experiencing your current life or understanding can be reflected in a, a number of different ways the way to sort of expand and provide really important and holistic perspectives or of information and education is to look at things from a multi-level perspective to offer different perspectives and to say that you know two things can be true at one time okay
0: yeah sounds like profound and like a, a big multidisciplinary quest fantastic thank you so much for this My next question uh, would be for Mia about some specific recommendations for contextualizing and reimagining ocean literacies. Coming from this, um, uh, what you both said now, uh, Mia, could you tell us a bit more about specific recommendations for contextualizing and reimagining ocean literacies now when we know that they need to be uh, holistic and uh, that it's more useful to think about them in pluralities. So some specific recommendations, which perhaps came out of the research, particularly in the context of the increased global focus on ocean literacy or indeed literacies uh, through the U.N. Ocean Decade. Uh, I think I think it, this 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 question is particularly um, uh, important for us now, as Hub became the implementing partner on transdisciplinarity within the the UN ocean decades um yeah so some some of the conclusions or some uh, messages that came out of your research would be precious at this stage
1: thank you I think we actually just recently published a short policy brief emerging from this publication which is trying to summarize 10 key messages from our research uh, which can be helpful if anyone wants to uh, explore a bit deeper but I think some of the specific recommendations that came out which I think are quite relevant for the UN ocean decade is ensuring that ocean literacies are adopted to specific contexts um, and also ensuring that children can learn from existing indigenous and local knowledges and from ocean connections that are already in place. Like Sophie was mentioning, a lot of children already have relationships to the ocean and the coast. And so making sure that ocean literacies programs can be adapted to the specific context in which it is situated to make sure that it is relevant and also speak to you know, the experiences of children themselves. Um, Another recommendation is also paying close attention to environmental justice and the holistic uh, aspect of environmental justice to make sure that environmental education considered children's access to education, children's access to to school curricula and to um, be able to go to school. You know, um, we know that climate change impacts and relevant um, things that are happening in and around the world right now is paying or is resulting in a disproportionate impact in terms of what children have access to education and what kind of education and even just being able to, to go to school at all. So I think we really need to look into existing socioeconomic inequalities and political situations that impact children's access to education and look at kind of realities that play a huge role in how children learn and their opportunities to learn, like we were saying directly from the ocean and from engaging in the environment, Um, but also in terms of looking at Social, cultural, socioeconomic, and political context, which might limit children's access to the ocean directly. And like in South Africa, that has been quite extremely solidified according to race and class. And we can't shy away from those realities. We need to recognize how history and how Existing conditions really do play a huge role in children's access to education and and knowledge and ocean literacies. And yeah, we can't solely focus on equality when children are not starting off from the same opportunities. And therefore we need to really scrutinize equity and creating equal opportunities to know about and engage with and experience the ocean. I think finally, I also think we should focus or acknowledge children's rights to the ocean in light of children's cultural rights. So I think one of the things we really emphasize in the paper and in the policy brief is that the ocean is such an important element for the heritage of many children and many cultures today. And this should be better accounted for both in ocean decision making, but also in ocean literacies programs and curricula. The ocean plays a huge role in a lot of children's identities, their indigenous and local knowledge systems, spiritual connections, healing, well being fun and play, like we've said, and these aspects should be better acknowledged and recognized in the way we implement Ocean literacies
0: programs and curricula and opportunities for children. Um, I would like to ask you maybe uh, uh, a question about uh, the other paper that we were talking about, Children's Rights to be Heard. On the ocean climate nexus and uh, in that vein I would like to ask Sophie um, in the context of this paper um, where you uh, offer a framework for facilitating children's participation uh, in international uh, ocean decision-making which is probably it's like it's linked to what Mia was saying and it's sort of next step to it I guess and in it you address four um, interrelated notions, that of space, that of voice, that of audience, and that of influence. Um, Can you explain why these four notions were sort of picked out as the key four ones uh, in this context?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So, something that I've noted quite frequently throughout um, my time at the Hub especially coming from a bit more of a traditional children's human rights background and applying it to a new lens or a new problem or a new um, platform, is um, how important it is also to note that you, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Um. So when we first started talking about pulling together a model to sort of strengthen children's participation in ocean governance and provide um for children's right to be heard, and for the voices to be given due weight, it was logical to then pull on the Lundy model of child participation, which is a sort of very prominent model in the child rights world developed by Laura Lundy, which has been used in different spaces across the UN and national governments from like Ireland to Taiwan uh, and by lots and lots of NGOs around the world as well. And so she sort of conceptualised children's meaningful participation as a chronological model of, as you said, space, voice, audience and influence as a way to address sort of systemic issues in children's participation uh, where oftentimes there is limited space for children to share their views and opinions, but in a way that's surface level when it was really failing to get incorporated into um, decision making because there was really little accountability for adults to take on those views. Um, that was really pertinent in sort of ocean governance spaces because of the systemic invisibility of children and children's voices there. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, it was a logical step to kind of use this familiar model and apply it to a way to improve the inclusion of children in ocean decision-making um, at an international level, but in a way that can be adapted uh, to multiple different avenues at more local and national perspectives as well so to take the model um as i said it's sort of chronological so you go through these steps one by one where space is about before you do anything uh, it's about providing a safe and inclusive space for children to express their views and then so the second one is voice uh, which is about providing information And support, which is important to note as well, not just information, but support to understand it so that children can express relevant views and insights. Um, As we know, uh, many children have a strong relationship with the ocean already, but that support can help to navigate it within the context within that decision making space. And so it's meaningful. Audience then is about making sure that those views are communicated to the right people to enact change. An influence is that those views are taken seriously. Um, and importantly, they're acted upon if possible to do so. And if not, uh, they know why not. You know, where are the strong sort of indigenous, local and cultural connections to the ocean, which aren't being represented? What are the models that they're, you're using to make sure that you can incorporate these things like fun, art and play-based methods? Um, and that this goes across all of the relevant sort of ocean governance bodies and models and the different levels and the final thing is about sort of building in accountability mechanisms which most often times for children in these spaces is feedback mechanisms there is never really a hundred percent expectation from anyone from any place that um their single view will sort of steer an entire policy it might sometimes it, it should, um, but. A process which is more cyclical and can build in feedback mechanisms is really important to understand. Okay, we put forth this policy here and that was informed by a conversation we had when you said, I don't have access to scientific information on what's happening to the ocean in this entire region of the world in a way that I understand it. And so we've implemented the policy that does that. That really strengthens the sort of experience of children in these spaces because it's not it's not about children being seen as just a source of information but as part of the conversation and part of the audience part of the influence um that where they share insights are important those are reflected in practice and in policies and where it's not there's also a clear conversation there to say we hear you we understand what you said we can't do it in this point in time but And then to follow up with that explanation and it's up to the children then if they say okay or say absolutely not. But that feedback process um, just makes everyone feel a little bit
0: better. That's great. (laughs) And also the policy brief, we definitely have to link it in the description of this podcast because uh, it looks like it's it's a key document that came out of this research. Um, it, it's kind of beautiful to hear that uh, there's this kind of uh, two directional dialogue on these matters with the children, and um, that it's that there's a, a genuine effort to provide them the the opportunity to be heard on the ocean climate nexus. Um, yeah, we were talking about the UN Ocean Decade. Um, And we were talking about sort of like the involvement of the UN and the recommendations and stuff. And uh, I want to just ask you a little follow-up question that sort of links with with your previous answer to a certain extent. Uh, And it has to do with the general comment 26 and realizing children's rights to ocean, to healthy ocean and uh, to ocean cultures. And so what is the role or what should be the role of the UN um, and what should be the outcome of uh, the implementation of the general comment 26 in realising children's rights to ocean to a healthy ocean and to ocean cultures
2: big question <laughs> um okay let me think so the UN and in particular in this instance the committee on the rights of the child can and already have a huge role in synthesizing a general overview of new difficult or maybe like complex information to provide avenues for change but it's unsustainable to think that they could force that change alone they can't necessarily take the what 192 plus countries of the world and offer every update, every piece of guidance and and insight on every child. Because children aren't a homogenous group, they're individuals as we are. Um, There are limited opportunities through sort of parts of the UN system like voluntary national reviews or the Convention on the Rights of the Child has an optional protocol on a communications procedure that states can sign up to where it acts as a sort of complaint or court function. Um, for like alleged rights violations, but they can't be tuned into everything, it's impossible and for many around the world they wouldn't want that either because as we've noted, a lot of things are best known in your sort of national and local experience and context. So the UN committee can sort of apply a global lens to issues and get the ball rolling but the strength is providing avenues for states, for countries, for children, for individual rights holders, sort of to take that into their own experience for action. So for General Comment 26, which is on children's rights and the environment um, with a special focus on climate change, um, that general comment didn't sort of come out of the blue. It came largely in response to a huge child-led, child rights and advocacy movement that's been underway for quite a long time. And in fact, uh, sort of across the global environmental movement, many, many children have been at at the front of protests, advocacies, so on. So children and young people had already been engaging with environmental issues, but perhaps struggling to see uh, local or national change. So we started seeing things like mass school strikes, there's movements like Fridays for the Future, and then a group of children came to... The committee invites the child to use that communications procedure against a list of countries to sort of challenge them on their role in failing to protect children and allowing sort of environmental harms to persist for current generations of children and future generations. The committee couldn't hear that case due to like a technical reason. But they saw the movement, they sort of engaged in an open letter to children about the issue and then got to work on the general comment so that they could tell states and children what are the obligations in terms of children's rights in this context for the environment. Now when we have that general comment published, um, which includes various aspects that are relevant to the ocean, there is a clear avenue for national entities, NGOs, and sort of collect- collectives of children to hold states to account, to incorporate change and obligations for children now and in the future, for clear guidance for children, young people, and those who support them, to use that language in their own settings, to make it as responsive to their lives and experiences as they can. So that's relevant for things like you asked there about ocean culture, but that sort of model is applicable to all environmental issues for children at the minute, where you can take that General Comment 26 document and say, well, I have a right to be involved in this Ocean Governance decision, this decision that's happening where I live as part of my coastal community. You can say you should, to the maximum extent possible, consider my voice and my views. You should have access to the sort of latest scientific evidence and information as part of my environmental education, a whole list of things. And... Um, And this is about children knowing their rights, knowing their futures, knowing their cultures, and then also trying to put in place models for access to justice and remedy when these things aren't being met. So the door is now quite open for that to be a part of future processes. And I think there's something like 12 to 18 child-led court cases all over the world at the minute where children are now bringing the sort of same concepts to their national governments, where children now have access to more tools, more obligations and more standards and procedures to make those messages maybe a bit more firm than they ever have been. And so I think
0: that's the strength. Thank you for that. I'm really grateful to both of you for illuminating a little bit to us uh, these several interrelationships uh, that happen between the knowledge, the education, the multifaceted notion of access, I guess to the decision table, to the, the actual very ocean physically, um, to, um, to the enjoyment of rights, particularly uh, in the countries where people and children were hit uh, by uh, oppression and inequalities, such as apartheid um, and similar things, um, and in the current situation in the world. Um, so uh, you presented us with this complex ecosystem in your two publications, and I hope that, um, and in the policy brief, which we're going to link (laughs) in in the description, Uh, but uh, I do hope that many people will engage uh, with these uh, publications um, and sort of learn more about it. Um, I certainly have in this time I had with you today, and I would like to thank you very much for coming on today, and um, I will be following your work in the future, so thank you both for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Until the next time and the next topic on all things ocean. Thank you all very much and see you next time.